never know what you'll find out when you come to church. So glad that you're here, whether you're in this room, the live venue, or whether you're next door in the communion venue, or whether you're online somewhere. Really glad that you're here. So we're going to be in Genesis chapter 2. So take your Bible or your device and go to Genesis. If you need one uh, to borrow, just wave at one of the ushers. They'll be glad to let you borrow a Bible or keep it if you need and Genesis is really easy to find because it's the very first one. As you're uh, turning, I'll just tell you about a conversation I had even this very past week. I was talking to a guy who said, you know, the, the, the problem I have with the church is the position of the church on marriage. And I said, well, okay, I don't, why don't you tell me what you believe the position of the church on marriage is? so that then maybe I can understand a little better what you're feeling. And he said, well, particularly about divorce, because I remember some years ago I was in a church and the preacher was just going on and on about how God hates divorce. And he was quoting that verse in the Old Testament that said, God hates divorce. And I said, okay. And once he got it all out, I looked at him and I said, but you know something? I think you hate divorce too. Because really, doesn't everybody hate divorce? Nobody signs up for marriage saying, this is awesome. And it's going to get even better when we get divorced in a couple of years. <laughs> Nobody signs up for that. Everybody hates divorce because that was never God's original plan. Which is why the Bible says divorce sometimes does happen. Particularly when trust has been shattered. I said, I wonder if maybe what you thought the preacher was saying was that God hates divorced people. Because if that's what you were hearing, I'd want to make sure that we set that straight. God doesn't hate divorced people any more than you don't hate divorced people. God loves divorced people. In fact, it breaks his heart when people get divorced, just like it breaks our hearts. He said, well, okay, so what's the benefit? What's the purpose, anyhow, of marriage? Well, since I was working on this sermon, I said, well, I, I, I give you three good purposes. <laughs> But before I go there, let me just say, if you weren't here last week, we started in on a series uh, that we're doing for multiple months going through the book of Genesis. And <clears throat> Clay got the series kicked off in a marvelous way, taking us back to the very start of creation. And if you weren't here, I'll just remind, if, if you were here, I'll remind you, and if you weren't, I'll catch you up. He, he, he was talking about how you see this rhythm that's going on in Genesis chapter 1 where God creates something and then he declares it's good. So he created the dry land and the oceans and it was good. And he, he created the sun and the moon and the stars and it was good. And fish and birds and animals and they were good. But then what did he say when he created humans? He stood back and he said, now that very good. That's my magnum opus. But I wonder if you noticed how the pronouns changed in verse 26. See, until then it was saying he created, 
He created. He created. He created. But then at 26, look what happens. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish and the birds and the livestock and the wild animals. What's going on here? Scholars have pointed out this is the first hint that God is going to give us, and we'll see more of it as we go through the whole of, of Scripture, that he was saying, I am not just singular. I am one God, but there are three manifestations of me, Father, Son, pre-incarnate, and Holy Spirit. In other words, what he was saying is, I have been since before the foundations of the world in community with myself. And it's important that we understand he's emphasizing this right before he creates the first humans because what he was saying is, I'm going to make you in my image, which means you're going to be made for community as well. And then he creates us for community, incidentally. And that's why when you come around here at Faith, would you hear us always talking about various on-ramps that we're putting out to try to help you find your way out of isolation into community where you can meet your people and where you can be in a group or, 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 or on a serve team or, or go on a mission trip or where you start to have some friends and you come out of isolation. Why? Because even as God was saying, I have always been communal with myself. I've created you in my image to be communal as well with other people. And you have to understand this background as we come into chapter two, which is where we are. Now, he's done this, all this creating, and so far he said everything's good, 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 very good. But then you see something in verse 18. He stops and he says, uh-uh. And he finds something that's not good. The Lord God said it is not good for man to be alone. So what does he do? Verse 219 tells us he backs up and he brings before Adam all the livestock and all the birds and all the wild animals. And he says, hey, Adam, I'm going to put you in charge. Whatever you call these people, these animals, whatever you name them, that's what they'll be. And so verse 20 says, the man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the sky and the wild animals. And what was this exercise doing for Adam? It was helping Adam to realize that as wonderful as all the animals were, he was never going to look into any of their eyes and say, Arvart, you complete me. It's not going to happen because even the very best of animals are not human. So verse 21, the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then he closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. Now, this is vivid language here, picturing a long, curved, glistening rib, moist with Adam's fluids and warm with his marrow. That's what a theologian named Kent Hughes writes, which is why today men have one fewer ribs than women. No, that's not true. <laughs> but you are thinking about it. But don't miss the theological significance of what's going on. We've already been told that Adam was made how? He was made out of the dust of the earth. 
But how does it say that Eve was made? Not out of the dust of the earth. Eve was made from the same stuff as Adam, bone, flesh, DNA, so that he might look out and, and see this part of creation and say, okay, now this one's different. This one, this one's set apart from the rest and embrace her in a different sort of way. And then it's beautiful language. Did you catch that in verse 22? It says, and God brought her to the man, which is a portrayal of the heavenly father bringing his, his, his daughter down the aisle, as it were, to give her to the man at the first wedding. And what was Adam's response? Same thing that I have heard so many grooms over the years say when they're standing up at the front, the doors open in the back, and there she is in all her lovely splendor. I've heard all sorts of things. Like, wow. You know, and, and sometimes tears. I mean, there's that, but I've never heard anybody go, well, yawn. You know, that, that doesn't happen. <laughs> and Adam, he breaks into poetry. What's he say? The man said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, and she'll be called woman, for she was taken out of the man. Theologically, what's going on here? We see instantly Adam had met and named all the other animals. But this one was different. He says, wait a second here. She is like me, or I'm like her. But it's like I know who I am in her presence in a way that none of the other animals did for me. And this verse 24 says, it's why the man leaves his father and his mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. In Adam, verse 25, Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. So God's going to show us three great purposes here in this uh, passage. Purposes for marriage. The first one is this. Quite simply, marriage provides for us a vehicle for forever friendship. I marvel at how many people miss this simple truth, particularly in our Hollywood-driven uh, world. Because understand, marriage is definitely more than friendship, but it's not less. And recently a guy asked, said, net it out for me, Pastor Ken. If I were to get married, what should I look for in a woman? I said, oh, that's easy. Look for your best friend. Now, Hollywood, as I said, doesn't help us. And neither does the English language. Because, see, in English, we only have one word, L-O-V-E, one word for love, which the Greeks had four different words. So you see, they had, first of all, eros, passionate, romantic love. And then they had agape. That's the selfless, unconditional kind of love like God has for us. And then they had storge, which was family love like siblings or a parent towards the child. Then they had phileia, which was friendship love, like the city of brotherly Philadelphia uh, comes out of that word. Now, today, of course, three of those four are oftentimes lost, and really all that is accentuated in our culture is eros, love. And yet throughout Scripture, 
It's really not. There's a lot of philia. In fact, in the Hebrew, there's a word aleph that, that speaks of the spouse as a best friend or a confidant. That's the picture that God is really leaning into. Now, since we're talking about friendship, let's just back up and say, okay, what does it take to have friendship? Well, it doesn't come about, friendship doesn't come about because two strangers just walk up and said, hey, want to be my friend? No, you have to have something that's drawing you together, some sort of shared mission or some sort of hobby or some sort of purpose that's inspiring both of you and you're, and you're moving towards something. That's what brings about friendship. It's illustrated wonderfully in a lot of films, but I was thinking of the, the film from a decade, more than a decade ago, Morgan Freeman and Jack Nicholson in their, in their film, The Bucket List. And in that film, you have these two old guys who are antagonistic at first, and they're trapped in, the, in a hospital. They're sharing a hospital room together with two beds there in the hospital, and they're irritating each other. And, but then things start to turn one day when one of them starts talking about the various things he'd like to do before he dies or kicks the bucket. And he's talking about his bucket list. And, and so they get going along, and together they build this bucket list and then the film takes you from scene to scene where they're skydiving and they're going to see the Taj Mahal and it really becomes quite an enjoyable film because these two characters that started out in such a cantankerous posture end up enjoying such a heartwarming friendship by the end what brought them together the bucket list they had some goals to accomplish Together. And that's how friendship, that's how philia love works. And this is what God created marriage for. Not the only thing God created it for, but he certainly created it for at least this much. That we might be in community as he is in community with himself, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, with our spouse. Now, let me anticipate some of you right about here saying, okay, th this would be good if I wasn't single but there's a little problem here with this sermon. No, there's not. And I'm going to tell you why. Because the reality is Christianity is the first world religion that ever came along and elevated singleness as a completely viable way of life. Even giving us the ultimate example in our Savior, Jesus himself, who stayed single his whole life. As did the Apostle Paul whose life we looked at a lot last year going through the book of Acts. And so if you're single, don't say, well, there's nothing here for me. No, the bottom line is still true. You're not created for isolation. You're created for community, even as God is communal with himself. So if you're, if you're single, no, you don't have the vehicle of marriage to, to have a built-in potentiality for, for, for friendship. But my my strong exhortation to you if you're single, and that is, by the way, it's not like one or two of you. I think it's like 30 or 40%. They told me a while back, approaching 50. There's a lot of you. So you're not like this tiny, this, it's, it's a substantial population today. And what I would want you to hear is keep moving towards other vehicles that could provide friendship, like church. 
when you could actually meet some other people who are pursuing a similar thing. They're going after God also, and they, they want to learn how to follow Jesus. And, and, and so you, you have something in common right there, growing in your faith. And while I'm talking to you who are single, let me just mention this also, in case you're ever pining away, lamenting your singleness. While marriage can provide a wonderful vehicle for friendship, husband and wife, it doesn't guarantee friendship, marriage doesn't. And that's why it's not hard to find married people who still say, I'm so lonely. Because someone in that marriage missed the cue. Friendships have to be worked on, developed, prioritized, cultivated. So marriage doesn't fix our need for community. But a well-maintained marriage certainly can provide community. Friendship, philia, love. So when I met uh, Suzanne, uh, like the video was saying, I, she, she, I was 35. So I wasn't a spring chicken. And, and she was 30. And a lot of our friends had already gotten married. And it's like the train was pulling out of the station without us. But neither of us, uh, you know, that hadn't happened for either of us. And it wasn't for lack of opportunity either, because both of us dated a, 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 quite a number of people. We'd never met each other yet. But I, I had a, a, a recurring experience, and that is no matter how friendly or funny or pretty or winsome uh, somebody was that I, that I would have a date with, I, I had this hollow feeling on the inside and, and even to the point that some of my friends said, what, what is wrong with her? She's, she's beautiful. She's fun. She's got a great family. And I would have to say, well, nothing's like wrong. She's all of the things that you say. But I just had a sense we don't quite share the same mission, calling to commit to spending a life together working on that. Because see, since I'd been 20, I had known that the Lord had sort of tapped me on the shoulder and said that he wanted me to, to become a pastor. And when I would share that with one gal or another and, and say, and maybe I'll start a church and all this kind of stuff, and I had a recurring experience, not every time, but sometimes, where they would look at me and smile and say, wow, that's really exciting. I went to church some when I was growing up too. You know, and, and I just had this sense deep down, I don't think you get it. I don't think you get it the way I, I would need you to get it until I met Suzanne. Because she was already in ministry. In fact, believe it or not, she would even been praying since she was a little girl that she would get to marry somebody who was a pastor. <laughs> and that's when I knew. This one is different, Lord. <laughs> Among other reasons, I knew it because though we'd never met in person, we would talk on the phone. We could go six hours, and you had to pay for the minutes back then. <laughs> and, 
yet I'd get, we'd get into six hours and just feel like we're getting started. There's so many more things we have to talk about, and things that we were reading and things that we were learning and ministries we were doing and people whose lives were changing and on and on and on, which, 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 which easily helped both of us to see we have, we have a shared goal, mission here. But since our relationship had only ever been long distance, and she was in Florida and I was here, and we'd never met in person, and see, back then, we didn't, we didn't have FaceTime. We didn't even have iPhones, not back then. And so we'd never even seen each other. And, and, and so when I was driving to the airport that she described, I already knew I love her with philia love. But what I really wanted to know is, but will I feel eros love? You know, and... <laughs> And no sooner had she bounded off the airplane with her big smile and given me a big hug that I, I, I was like, I'm feeling Eros, you know? And, <laughs> and, she, and, and she looked at me and, <laughs> well, need I say more, you know? And, and so <laughs> okay, now I'm, I'm, being, I'm being silly, but that's a good transition to the second great purpose of marriage. Friendship. Secondly, it's a safe space for sexuality. And I emphasize a safe space for sexuality because let's remember, God is not anti-sex. He's pro-sex. It's not like Adam and Eve one day were scampering out in the woods and say, well, you know, I just wonder if this could ever possibly fit in there. Oh, my gracious. You know, <laughs> we better not tell God about this one. No, because God invented it from the beginning himself. And he was right there with Adam and Eve, smiling the whole time. It was even God who invented the hormone oxytocin, which now they understand is the love hormone that makes you want to be close and hug and all of these sorts of things. And that was all God's invention. And he even created a perfectly safe space for it all to be enjoyed, and that is within the confines of a monogamous male-female marriage. But there's a problem nowadays. Society tells us over and over regarding sexuality. Don't be hostage to yesteryear's passe sexual ethic where you just reserve yourself for one person in marriage. Do whatever feels right. Do what it, whenever it feels right. But I can tell you as a pastor, that is not working. Because I've just talked to so many people who carried burdens of pain and guilt and shame, like heavy baggage that they're toting through life, either because of choices that they made sexually or choice that was made by somebody else about them, for them, abusively. And see, when sex is used the wrong way, the commitment, the commitment apparatus, the, 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 the glue of sorts that God designed it to be gets, starts getting messed up and, and kind of dismantled. And it even can work backwards and make a person feel less able to commit and trust another person. I remember Ben Stewart some years ago talking about this, this very subject, and, and, he, and he likened it to fire. He says, is fire good? Well, depends. If it's in a pit, if it's in a fireplace, fire's a great thing. But 
it's not so great when it leaps out of the fireplace, gets onto the carpet, gets into the furniture, because it's not long before the whole house is burning down in a very real way. I'm afraid that the scars caused by the burn of sexuality are leaving a lot of people feeling empty and hollow. And that's not what God ever created it for. Look at verse 25 again. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. That word naked means more than just strip off all your clothes naked. It means emotional naked. It means relational. It means spiritual. It means the whole you know me all the way through to the core of my being and you still love me and I you. That is what it's talking about, naked and unashamed. And that's what he created marriage to provide for us. Now, I suspect we probably will need, we'll just have to come back and talk some more about this in the future, but I don't have time, so I'm going to keep going. But before I move on, let me just, I just want to encourage because you can't, I can't talk about uh, a subject like this with as many people as are hearing me. Um, and not know that there's any number of you who are feeling tender right about now. And even though I've been a little silly... I don't want you to think for a moment I'm being silly about you or your feelings. It's just that I know sometimes that humor can disarm us a little bit. The reality is, if you are carrying some wounds, some, some hurts, some pain, God would love to heal you and to free you from having to carry that heavy baggage. And to that end, we're going to pray in a moment when I'm done. And, and, but, but, and I'm going to ask God to do a healing. But sometimes God also chooses to use an assistant, a helper, who has skin on him. And that's what we call a counselor. And I would really encourage you to consider, um, to reach out to somebody who's, who's trained, who's, who is a counselor. In fact, we, we have a, a, a number of them that we refer to. We don't keep any full-time counselors on our staff. We do have Janice and we have George in our care ministry and, and they meet with a person or a couple, you know, once basically just to ascertain because they're not really trained as LPC counselors and that sort of thing, but, but they, they can get to the figuring out, here's who I think you need to see. And if you didn't even want to take time to talk to them, you could just go to faithbridge.org care. And you can see the list of counselors that we have. And I hope that you would reach out. Because the last thing I'd want you to do is to, to, to think that you were here and a scab got plucked off and that then you just, we did nothing with that. Because God would, like, would love nothing more than to heal you. But some counseling sessions might be helpful especially 
the counselors who know the Lord and love the Lord and scripture and that's forming their worldview. So what have we said? We said uh, marriage, the first wedding back in Genesis 2, he creates this for community, for forever friendship, philia, and then as a safe space for sexuality, and then finally as a crucible for sanctification. Those are two big words. What's sanctification? That's a process of spiritual growth. And what is a, 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 a crucible? Well, think cauldron or kettle. The problem, I think, with many marriages these days is, is that one or both parties, they never really leap fully into the kettle. They put a few toes or a foot in, but they keep some of themselves out. And what did God say in the very first wedding? Verse 24, that's why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. What's he saying? He's saying you, you have to leave behind what you have been. And for many, it's nothing more than mom and dad. And you have to cut the umbilical cord. I didn't say cut them off because we're also told to honor our, our mothers and fathers. So we honor them, but, but there has to be a transference of loyalty if the relationship, same with our friends. Our spouse has to become um, number one. There, there has to be a, a willingness to say, I, I'm gonna go all in. And if you're a follower of Christ, you should know that there's, there's actually a profound reason for this. Though it doesn't show up in Genesis, it shows up in Ephesians 5.27, where Paul is writing about this very thing. And he says, so here's really the goal that we're working for in marriage, that you, husband and wife, might someday present one another before God as holy and unblemished. In other words, when you're young, uh, in your youth, you meet each other and you, you say, you know, I think we could spend a life together helping one another get ready to finally one day stand holy and unblemished before our Lord. And unless both die concurrently, one will lay the other into the Lord's loving arms eternity some years later that's what he's talking about that's what we're talking about here when we're saying it's a crucible for sanctification it's one person saying i want to help you become all that god made you to be and the other saying to the one i want to help you become all that God made you to be. Sort of like they asked uh, Michelangelo. So, so like, how, what's going through your mind? You got this big block of stone, and how in the world does David come out of there? He says, because I spend all my time chiseling off the things that aren't David. And that's really what marriage does for us. If we allow it to do what it was created to do, to knock off the parts of us, the residue, the dross, that isn't really what God made us to be so that we can become more like Christ. That's the goal. And when I think of 
that goal. I, I, I'm always inspired to go back to one of the best examples of it. It was Martin Luther. I told his story some years ago, but I'll tell it again. It's, it's, Martin Luther, you have to understand, he was a Catholic priest 600 years ago. But an interesting thing began to happen. He began to study God's word, and he began to realize, I don't know if what we're teaching these people and what we're doing is really what this says we should be doing. Chief among the problems, he concluded, it seems that we're supposed to be saved by grace. And here we are loading up these burdens upon people, essentially telling them, you better go out and fill up your basket with a lot of good things. And you put a lot of good things into your bushel basket. Maybe one day when you're standing before God, you put your bushel basket in front of him. And he says, well, that's good enough for me. And Martin Luther is like, that's not what it says. What it says, the gospel says the very opposite. That you'll never, none of us will be ever able to fill up our basket adequately to please God. The only way that we can come into a saving relationship with him is to come to the realization, I'll never fill this basket up. And present to him our empty basket and say, I am nothing if it weren't for your grace. That's why he came and lived the life of sinlessness that we couldn't live and died the death of punishment that we all deserved and conquered the grave so that we could say, I want what you have done because I could never do enough, God. And Martin Luther was realizing, wait a second, the way to salvation isn't by stacking up all the good things. The only way you get saved is if you come to him with the realization, I have nothing if it's not for you and your grace. And that's when God says, now you've got it. And I can save you. And I can change you from the inside out. Well, this is Martin Luther. Now, you can imagine, he's a Catholic priest and he's, and he's starting to, to have these realizations and discoveries and he's writing about it and he's posting them. And, and the leaders of the church pulled him aside and he said, you need to knock this off uh, because this is, this is not what we're about. You're, you're kind of messing up the play, a little bit like the Pharisees with Jesus. And he says, I, I, can't, I can't pull back from this. I believe this is absolutely what the Bible is saying. Well, he, then they said, well, then we're going to kick you out of the church. And so they, they expelled him, and they called him a protester. And the people who followed him, they called the protestants or the protestants. Now, an interesting thing, uh, in addition to, to what he was understanding about gospel and, and, and salvation, he also was reading about marriage. And he said, I don't think I see any mandate in God's word saying that the priest or the, or the nuns should have to stay married all their life. That they certainly could if they want to do that and feel so called to do that. It'll give them more time to serve the Lord, as 1 Corinthians 7 says. But he says, I don't think that we're ever precluded if we were to want and feel called to be married from that. Well, he, he writes this in an article, and it goes out in, uh, over in the other village. There's about 10 or 12 nuns that they're like, amen, brother. They like the article, and... and and so they send him word and said, now this is, this is more like it. But the problem was, in those days, you didn't just step away from being a priest or a nun and celibacy, and, and you just walk away from that like nothing had ever happened. No, 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 no. That you could get in trouble. You could even get killed. Not a great part of 
church history. But that could happen. And so they sent word to him and said, we like, and we agree. And would you come rescue us? And so, because we'd like to get out of here and we'd like to get married. And so he puts together a plan and he, and he does indeed get them all rescued. And he finds them all spouses, all but one. Her name was Catherine. And he couldn't find a spouse for Catherine. And Catherine was a bold woman. So finally she stepped up to Martin Luther and she said, look, if you can't find somebody to marry me, then you need to do the noble thing. You need to marry me. And he said, but I don't want to marry you. And plus he'd also apparently told somebody, you know, she's not the prettiest one in the lot. And that never does wonders for the relationship. But over time, the Lord prevailed on his spirit. And he says, okay, I will. I'll marry her. Besides, he said, I want to send a signal to the bureaucrats in the church, a shot across the bow. So he got married to her privately out in the woods, after which he famously wrote, the reason I married her was to spite the devil, which is not the most more romantic thing to say on a wedding day. But once they were married, she moves in and she starts changing his house around and apparently he had some real stinky gas and so she changes his diet around and figuring this isn't good for either of us. And, and, and so you can imagine the, the, the marriage starts off kind of rocky, but there was a breakthrough that happened along the way. And the breakthrough came as they discovered each other's sense of humor and they found ways that they began to tease one another. And Martin Luther, he uh, was prone to depression, what we would call today clinical depression. And of course, they didn't have any SSRI medications or anything like we have nowadays. But the thing that she found could bring him out of his funk, most hopefully, was when she would lighten him up with her humor. So one day, she, knowing he was in a funk, uh, greeted him at the door after a day's work when he got home. And she was all dressed in black as if she was going to a funeral. And, <clears throat> and he, he said, when he walked in the door, what are, where are you going? Are you headed to a funeral? And she said, no, but since you act like God is dead, I figured I would join you in the grieving. <laughs> and, and it brought them both to laughter. And by the end of her life, the two of them had built a home full of many children, of much music, and of a lot of laughter. And ultimately, Luther wrote about her. She was my Lord Katie, my true love, my sweetheart, a gift from God. Oh, it took time, time to develop that philia love. Clearly, they found the eros because they had bunch of kids and there was a sanctification that happened in both of them and God ended up using them some of the most significant people in all of church history the last 2,000 years this is what God wants for you for me in all of our marriages, if you're married. And so if you are, or if you're headed in that direction with somebody, that's what I really want for you.
In fact, I was just thinking, imagine if we could be a church full of people who, if married, are living with all three of those components intact. Setting examples to others across our community who are floundering in their relationships and looking for examples of marriages that are strong and robust. Imagine if we were a church full of those types of marriages. And if you're single, imagine if we are a church full of single people because we are that also. Single people, though, that aren't lamenting their singleness, but who are leaning into holy living and enjoying community with one another, bringing out the best in one another for the sake of Christ, regardless of their marital status. I say that would be a noble goal for all of us. Which by God's grace, and only by God's grace, we could be if we were to band together against the superficialities of culture and pursue what God always had in mind from the very beginning in Genesis 2. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for... These verses that are so dense with rich meaning and doctrine for us and give such instruction that despite the passing of thousands of years since they were penned, they're still timeless, they're still truthful, and they still work. Lord, I I pray particularly today for those who I know feel a little bit tender because there's some hurt and there's some pain and some wound. And Lord, my prayer is that you would be the great physician and that you would step up and put the salve of your healing grace upon their souls upon their memories, upon their hearts, upon their minds, that they might experience the truth that you tell us in 1 John, that if we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, I pray that you would do that cleansing, healing work, and that you will give them courage and grace to move towards a counselor. Because sometimes you see fit God to utilize an assistant with skin on them who's trained to help in that process. God, I pray that even this week they'll not just repress what we've talked about, but that they'd step towards it and begin to experience the liberation and grace that you always had in mind for everyone. Lord, I pray, God, your blessings, not just on the marriages, though I certainly pray for marriages, that any marriages that are fragile might even find the humility to have a little discussion this afternoon or this evening 
even about the things we, we've talked about. And that by your spirit, maybe they, their minds could be drawn back to the beginnings of their relationship, particularly if there had been a meaningful friendship. And if not, that you would begin to give them something to go after together as friends. And I pray for those who are single that they'll not despair, but that they'll remember <laughs> to the best, to the, well, our Savior. And then Apostle Paul, you chose for them to be single. And they changed the world. And so help us to lean into singleness, if that's our calling forever or our calling for this season, to live with holiness. No less in community and no longer in isolation. And thank you that we have the church as a vehicle to provide those kind of friendships, community. So I pray, God, that you would do a great work. And if, friends, you've, you've never trusted in Jesus in the first place, today would be a great day for you to do that. You just tell him right now in this quiet moment, Lord, I am asking you to come into my heart and to forgive me of my sins, to cleanse me of unrighteousness, to fill me full of your Holy Spirit and to teach me in the days and weeks and months and years to come what it means to have a vibrant relationship with you. Because every other relationship we ever have ultimately stems from the health of this most foundational relationship with you. And we pray all these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.